think again the power of knowing what you don't know by adam grant this book is a new addition to the growing body of mainstream books about mental blind spots cognitive biases and thinking errors every individual possesses cognitive tools and accumulated knowledge that they regularly rely upon but we rarely question or consider this knowledge which includes beliefs assumptions opinions and prejudices blind adherence to these tools can result in poor outcomes such as inflexible overconfidence bad decision making avoidable fa- avoidable errors and failures to learn and grow how do we know what we know and how do we know if we are right grant solution is an idea he calls rethinking rethinking is the process of doubting what you know being curious about what you don't know and updating your thinking based on new evidence In the first chapter of the book Grant outlines three common mindsets coined by political scientist Phil Tetlock preacher prosecutor and politician we routinely fall into one or more of these roles when we engage with others and in our solitary conversations with ourselves when we are locked in preacher mode we are set on promoting our ideas at the expense of listening to others when we are in prosecution mode we actively attack the ideas of others in an effort to win an argument politician mode seeks the approval of others and has little conviction for the truth in each of the three mindsets the truth takes a back seat to other considerations which are being right defending your beliefs and currying favor grant recommends a fourth role to offset those found in tetlock's model this is the mindset of the scientist this mindset embraces grant's idea of rethinking Those with a scientific mindset search for truth by testing hypotheses, regularly run experiments and continuously uncover new truths and revise their thinking. In this mode of thinking, changing your mind is a sign of intellectual integrity, not one of moral weakness or a failure of conviction. This scientific method is a key through line in the book. It offers a superior path to improved thinking, true knowledge and lifelong learning. Think again is structured into three main parts. The first part considers rethinking at the individual level. The second part explores how to encourage and influence other individuals to engage in rethinking. The final part looks at rethinking at the institutional or group level. Realistically, Grant could have turned each section into three separate books. He covers a lot of ground that could benefit from greater depth. And here are some book notes. Um, imagine that you have finished taking a multiple choice test and you start to second guess one of your answers. You have some extra time. Should you stick with your first instinct or change it? About three quarters of students are convinced that revising their answer will hurt their score. Kaplan, the big test prep, uh, the big test prep company, once warned students to exercise great caution if you decide, decide to change an answer. experience indicates that many students who change answers change to the wrong answer with all due respect to the lessons of experience i prefer the rigor of evidence when a trio of psychologists conducted a comprehensive review of 33 studies they found that in every one the majority of answer revisions were from wrong to right this phenomenon is known as the first instinct fallacy in one demonstration psychologists counted eraser mass Eraser, in one day, let's do that again. No, this is no, no, no retakes. <clears throat> in one demonstration, psychologists counted eraser marks 
on the exams of more than 1500 students in Illinois, only a quarter of the changes were from right to wrong, while half were from wrong to right. I have seen it in my own classroom year after year. My students' final exams have surprisingly few eraser marks, but those who do rethink their first answers rather than staying anchored to them end up improving their scores. Of course, it's possible that second answers are not inherently better, they're only better because students are generally so reluctant to switch that they only make changes when they're fairly confident. But recent studies point to a different explanation. It's not so much about changing your answer that improves your score as much as considering whether you should change it. We don't just hesitate to rethink our answers, we hesitate at the very idea of rethinking. Take an experiment where hundreds of college students were randomly assigned to learn about the first instinct fallacy. The speaker taught them about the value of changing their minds and gave them advice about when it made sense to do so. On their next two tests, they still were not any more likely to revise their answers. Part of the problem is cognitive laziness. Some psychologists point out that we are mental misers. We often prefer the ease of hanging on to old views over the difficulty of grappling with new ones. Yet there are also deeper forces behind our resistance to rethinking. Questioning ourselves makes the world more unpredictable. It requires us to admit that the facts may have changed, that what was once right may now be wrong. Reconsidering something we believe deeply can threaten our identities, making it feel as if we are losing a part of ourselves. Part 1. Individual Rethinking If you are a scientist by trade, rethinking is fundamental to your profession. You are paid to be constantly aware of the limits of your understanding. You are expected to doubt what you know, be curious about what you don't know, and update your views based on new data. But being a scientist is not just a profession, it's a frame of mind, a mode of thinking that differs from preaching, prosecuting, and politicking. We move into scientist mode when we are searching for the truth. We run experiments to test hypotheses and discover knowledge. Scientific tools are not reserved for people with white coats and beakers, and using them does not require toiling away for years with a microscope and a petri dish. Hypotheses have as much of a place in our lives as they do in the lab. Experiments can inform our daily decisions. That makes me wonder, is it possible to train people in other fields to think more like scientists, and if so, do they end up making smarter choices? Recently, a quartet of European researchers decided to find out. They ran a bold experiment with more than a hundred founders of Italian startups in technology, retail, furniture, food, healthcare, leisure and machinery. Most of the founders' businesses had yet to bring in any revenue, making it an ideal setting to investigate how teaching scientific thinking would influence the bottom line. The entrepreneurs arrived in Milan for a training program in entrepreneurship. Over the course of four months, they learned to create a business strategy, interview customers, build a minimum viable product, and then refine a prototype. What they did not know was that they had been randomly assigned to either a scientific thinking group or a control group. The training for both groups was identical except that one was encouraged to view startups through a scientist's goggles. Over the following year, the startups in the control group averaged under $300 in revenue. The startups in the scientific thinking group averaged over $12,000 in revenue. They brought in revenue more than twice as fast, 
and attracted customers sooner too. Why? The entrepreneurs in the control group tended to stay wedded to their original strategies and products. It was too easy to preach the virtues of their past decisions, prosecute the vices of alternative opinions and politic by catering to advisors who favored the existing direction. The entrepreneurs who had been taught to think like scientists, in contrast, pivoted more than twice as often. When their hypotheses were not supported, they knew it was time to rethink their business models. What is surprising about these results is that we typically celebrate great entrepreneurs and leaders for being strong-minded and clear-sighted. They are supposed to be paragons of conviction, decisive and certain. Yet, evidence reveals that when business executives compete in tournaments to price products, the best strategists are actually slow and unsure. Like careful scientists, they take their time so they have the flexibility to change their minds. When psychologist Mihaly studied eminent scientists like Linus Pauling and Jonas Salk, he concluded that what differentiated them from their peers was their cognitive flexibility, their willingness to move from one extreme to the other as the occasion requires. The same pattern held for great artists and in an independent study of highly creative architects. We can even see it in the Oval Office. Experts assessed American presidents on a long list of personality traits and compared them to rankings by independent historians and political scientists. Only one trait consistently predicted presidential greatness after controlling for factors like years in office, wars and scandals. It was not whether presidents were ambitious or forceful, friendly or Machiavellian. It wasn't whether they were attractive, witty, poised or polished. What set great presidents apart was their intellectual curiosity and openness. They read widely and were as eager to learn about developments in biology, philosophy, architecture and music as in domestic and foreign affairs. They were interested in hearing new views and revising their old ones. They saw many of their policies as experiments to run, not points to score. According to what is now known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, it is when we lack competence that we are most likely to be brimming with overconfidence. In the original Dunning-Kruger studies, people who scored the lowest on tests of logical reasoning, grammar and sense of humor had the most inflated opinions of their skills. On average, they believed they did better than 62% of their peers, but in reality outperformed only 12% of them. The less intelligent we are in a particular domain, the more we seem to overestimate our actual intelligence in that domain. In a group of football fans, the one who knows the least is the most likely to be the armchair quarterback prosecuting the coach for calling the wrong play and preaching about a better playbook. Absolute beginners rarely fall into the Dunning-Kruger trap. If you don't know a thing about football, you probably don't walk around believing you know more than the coach. It is when we progress from novice to amateur that we become overconfident. A bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. In too many domains of our lives, we never gain enough expertise to question our opinions or discover what we don't know. 
we have just enough information to feel self-assured about making pronouncements and passing judgment, failing to realize that we have climbed to the top of Mount Stupid without making it over to the other side. A crucial nutrient for the mind is humility. The antidote to getting stuck on Mount Stupid is taking a regular dose of it. The blogger Tim Urban explains, while humility is a permeable filter that absorbs life experience and converts it into knowledge and wisdom, arrogance is a rubber shield that life experience simply bounces off of. Humility is often misunderstood. It is not a matter of having low self-confidence. One of the Latin roots of humility means from the earth. It is about being grounded, recognizing that we are flawed and fallible. Confident humility can be taught. In one experiment, when students read a short article about the benefits of admitting what we don't know, rather than being certain about it, their odds of seeking extra help in an area of weakness spiked from 65 to 85 percent. They were also more likely to explore opposing political views to try to learn from the other side. Not long ago, I gave a speech at a conference about my research on givers, takers and matchers. I was studying whether generous, selfish or fair people were more productive in jobs like sales and engineering. One of the attendees was Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist who has spent much of his career demonstrating how flawed our intuitions are. He told me afterward that he was surprised by my finding that givers had higher rates of failure than takers and matchers, but higher rates of success too. When you read a study that surprises you, how do you react? Many people would get defensive, searching for flaws in the study's design or the statistical analysis. Danny did the opposite. His eyes lit up and a huge grin appeared on his face. That was wonderful, he said. I was wrong. Later, I sat down with Danny for lunch and asked him about his reaction. It looked a lot to me like the joy of being wrong. His eyes twinkled as if he was having fun. He said that in his 85 years, no one had pointed that out before. But yes, he genuinely enjoys discovering that he was wrong because it means he is now less wrong than before. Danny is not interested in preaching, prosecuting or politicking. He is a scientist devoted to the truth. When I asked him how he stays in that mode, he said, he refuses to let his beliefs become part of his identity. I change my mind at a speed that drives my collaborators crazy, he explained. My attachment to my ideas is provisional. There is no unconditional love for them. Attachment, that is what keeps us from recognizing when our opinions are off the mark and rethinking them. To unlock the joy of being wrong, we need to detach. I have learned that two kinds of detachment are especially useful. Detaching your present from your past and detaching your opinions from your identity. Let us start with detaching your present from your past. In psychology, one way of measuring the similarity between the person you are right now and your former self is to ask which pair of circles best describes how you see yourself. And this, I'll, I'll just send you the photo on WhatsApp. Um, in the moment, separating your past self from your current self can be unsettling. 
Even positive changes can lead to negative emotions. Evolving your identity can leave you feeling derailed and disconnected. Over time, though, rethinking who you are appears to become mentally healthy as long as you can tell a coherent story about how you got from past to present you. In one study, when people felt detached from their past selves, they became less depressed over the course of the year. When you feel as if your life is changing direction and you are in the process of shifting who you are, it is easier to walk away from foolish beliefs you once held. Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio told me, if you don't look back at yourself and think, wow, how stupid I was a year ago, then you must not have learned much in the last year. The second kind of detachment is separating your opinions from your identity. I am guessing you would not want to see a doctor whose identity is professional lobotomist, send your kids to a teacher whose identity is corporal punisher, or live in a town where the police chief's identity is stop and frisker. Most of us are accustomed to defining ourselves in terms of our beliefs, ideas and ideologies. This can become a problem when it prevents us from changing our minds as the world changes and knowledge evolves. Our opinions can become so sacred that we grow hostile to the mere thought of being wrong and the totalitarian ego leaps into silence, counter-arguments, squash contrary evidence and close the door on learning. Who you are should be a question of what you value, not what you believe. Values are your core principles in life. They might be excellence and generosity, freedom and fairness or security and integrity. Basing your identity on these kinds of principles enables you to remain open-minded about the best ways to advance them. You want the doctor whose identity is protecting health, the teacher whose identity is helping students learn, and the police chiefs whose identity is promoting safety and justice. When they define themselves by values rather than opinions, they buy themselves the flexibility to update their practices in light of new evidence. If being wrong repeatedly leads us to the right answer, the experience of being wrong itself can become joyful. Psychologists find that admitting we were wrong does not make us look less competent. It is a display of honesty and a willingness to learn. Although scientists believe it will damage their reputation to admit that their studies fail to replicate, the reverse is true. They are judged more favorably if they acknowledge the new data rather than deny them. When we find out we might be wrong, a standard defense is, I am entitled to my opinion. I would like to modify that. Yes, we are entitled to hold opinions inside our own heads. If we choose to express them out loud though, I think it is our responsibility to ground them in logic and facts, share our reasoning with others and change our minds when better evidence emerges. This philosophy takes us back to the Harvard students who had their worldviews attacked in that unethical study by Henry Murray. They saw challenges to their opinions as an exciting opportunity to develop and evolve their thinking. The students who found it stressful did not know how to detach. Their opinions were their identities. An assault on their worldviews was a threat to their very sense of self. Their inner dictator rushed in to protect them. Every time we encounter new information, we have a choice. We have a choice. 
first we can attach our opinions to our identities and stand our ground in the stubbornness of preaching and prosecuting or we can operate more like scientists defining ourselves as people committed to the pursuit of truth even if it means proving our own views wrong you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool richard feynman so iske baad there is part 2 interpersonal rethinking and part 3 collective rethinking but i'm not going to go into that so there you go there's your executive summary of think again